begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we're almost done. Uh, next week will be our last class on uh, the anointing of the sick. Today we're talking about the sacrament of penance or reconciliation, or as I am more comfortable saying, confession. Because that's where you go. Um, so we're going to talk about that, and there's a lot of passages we're going to be hitting. Uh, I'll try to, uh, there's some of them I'll, you know, just not have you flip to, so there's not too much flipping back and forth. Um, but I really want to try to establish a few things in the Old Testament especially uh, that come up, especially when you're talking to our Protestant brothers and sisters who have a big issue with confessing your sins to a man. Why do you have to do that? So we'll try to, to deal with some of that today. But as we've done in uh, the other sacraments, uh, we're going to deal with a few of the more uh, mundane aspects of the, the sacrament at first, and then we'll dive into the Old Testament. To begin with, the minister of the sacrament is a priest or bishop with proper jurisdiction. It's one of the canon law things that you know, if it's a priest, he has to have the faculties given to him by a bishop. Um, don't want to go into to that too much, but that's one of the requirements. Uh, the recipient for this is uh, a baptized Christian. Uh, within the Catholic Church, it's required, unless uh, there's danger of death, that it be a Catholic, you know, someone who has been baptized Catholic, um, or at least baptized and then a member of the Catholic Church. Uh, who has sinned, right? So, the matter and form. The matter of the sacraments, which is one of the the more interesting things, you know, the matter that we've been dealing with up to this point has been stuff, right? The substance, you know, the, the earthly things. Uh, but for the matter and confession, uh, w among the different things are your sins, right? That's the thing you have to bring to confession. But there's three things, actually, that you need. Contrition, okay? And there's two types of contrition. There's imperfect contrition and perfect contrition. Um, perfect contrition, you know, God will forgive on his own, you know, if you can generate perfect contrition. But the church, you know, requires at least imperfect contrition. Now, what's perfect contrition? It's when you are sorry for your sins totally and completely because it has offended God, right? Now, most of us, you know, <laughs> you know, there's going to be, you know, fear of punishment, you know, shame and all of that, that kind of muddies the water. But for the sacrament of confession, the church just asks that you bring imperfect contrition, at least, you know, you have to be sorry for your sins uh, with the intention of not committing that sin again. Uh, and then you have the confessed sins and then the penance that you perform afterwards, which is usually just some type of uh, token uh, expression of your sorrow that the priest asks you to do. Uh, in the olden days, they could be very severe, like spending uh, three days and three nights 
in a, a tomb of one of the martyrs or something like that, or being exiled for 10 years. I mean, they could be pretty extreme. Um, but the church over time, you know, lessened that. Uh, it's an interesting backstory. Um, and, and that's where the birth of, uh, um, you know, the church, you know, easing up on the punishments uh, has taken place. Um, all right. That's the matter. The form are the words of absolution, uh, which include, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, enough of that. Let's, let's dig into the idea behind it, all right, and get into the biblical text, which is what this class is all about. So sin, we're going to start with that. Sin, uh, we've talked a great deal in this class about original sin, as a violation of the covenant. And of course, baptism removes all effects of original sin, right? It, baptism removes all original sin, and it also, for an adult, removes all actual sin, right? Original sin is what we receive because of Adam's transgression in the garden. Uh, it separates the human family from God. It breaks covenant with God, uh, and baptism restores that. Right? But there are actual sins as well, which are personal. Right, You didn't personally commit original sin. Uh, the original sin is, is not, um, you know, original sin is more of a deprivation in the soul, something that should be there that's missing. Actual sins are things that have separated us from God. Okay? And the church determines two different categories of actual sins venial and mortal okay and the first text i want to look is actually in the new testament just to to give you a handle on this because in the the first letter of john he talks about this that there are two types of sins right uh this is from first john you can just listen it's just two verses here first john chapter 5 verse 16 and 17 if anyone sees his brother committing what is not a deadly sin, he will ask, and God will give him life for those whose sin is not deadly. There is sin which is deadly. Do not say that one is to pray for that. I do not say that one is to pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not deadly. Right, so St. John clearly distinguishes two different types of sins. Sins that are deadly, the church calls it mortal, Something that's mortal is deadly. It's what kills the soul, right? We say that it permanently, not permanently, but it uh, definitively separates God from the person who has sinned, right? There's a clear break in the relationship. So there is sin that is deadly, and therefore there is sin that is not deadly. And he says you can actually pray for those people, and God will forgive their sins. That's an important point, and we're going to come back to that that we can mediate for other people for the forgiveness of sins, right? Did you get that right here? That we can play a part in someone else's forgiveness. All right, real important point, and we'll come back to that. All right, so that's foundational, okay? The difference between original sin and actual sin, and actual sin has two different types, mortal and venial. Okay, so keep all that straight in your mind here. Now, we can define uh, actual sin 
as an offense against God. It is a failure in genuine love for God. All right? Another way of saying this is you're choosing self over God. All right? That's what sin is. That's what we're dealing with tonight. Now, in the Old Testament, um, we see sin all over the place, <laughs> over and over and over again. It's, you know, the most, I mean, flip the page and you're going to see some version of sin taking place, right? Now, there are several things that pop up throughout um, that are significant. Uh, for example, one of the things we often see is... Um, well, first of all, that in a general sense, sin is seen as a failure to keep the covenant, right? We've seen the covenant play a part from, you know, the very beginning in Genesis all the way through what is a covenant. A covenant is a kinship bond that is formed between God and man, right? Family bond. And so sin is something that damages or ruptures that covenant. And it's often depicted in, uh, in the actions that take place as resulting in wandering in the wilderness. Okay, You see this with Adam and Eve because they're kicked out of the garden. They're cast out of the garden to the east of the garden. East of the garden, right? And then next generation, Cain kills Abel. As a result of this, he's kicked out of that area into further east, the land of Nod, the land of wandering, is what they call it, okay? What's going on here is, where is God? God is depicted in Genesis as being in the garden, right? There's an intimate relationship between Adam and Eve. The more you sin, the further away from God you get, okay? So the physical distance is uh, an indicator of the spiritual reality in the relationship between God and man. The more you sin, the further away from God you get, right? And you're wandering in the, in the wilderness. And if you're in the wilderness, where are you not? You're not at home, right? You're somewhere you shouldn't be. You're out in the wilderness. And that really comes to a head with Israel, okay, who gets stuck in slavery, which is another symbol for sins. Slavery is uh, you know, a, a symbol for our re lost relationship. And even when the people are freed from that, they end up sinning again. You have the golden calf incident, right? And then you have uh, more sins that take place. And so the people don't get to go into the promised land. They're stuck wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Again, a representation of the sin, the separation between God and man. God is in the promised land. They can't get to him because of the separation of sin. And later on, even when they do enter into the promised land, you have the kingdom established, you have King David, you know, again, sinfulness, the, the tribes divide, you have the Assyrians come in and pull the ten northern tribes out into the diaspora, out into the Gentile nations. And then more specifically, you have the nation of Judah, right, down south around Jerusalem, who were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, right? For 70 years, they're outside of Jerusalem. They're away from God. They're away from the temple. They're away from the Ark of the Covenant, okay? So this is how the Old Testament views sin. 
So the results of sin are separation from God. And you even see this, you know, after the golden calf incident, the Levites become the priests, okay? And so they're in the wilderness, and they have the Ark of the Covenant, which contains the Word of God in stone, the Ten Commandments, right? It's the holiest object in all of ancient Israel. And it's what leads them through the wilderness and eventually into the Promised Land, right? The Levites are the ones responsible for this. When they eventually go into the Promised Land, it's the Levites who carry the Ark of the Covenant into the Jordan and the river opens up, okay, and separates and they're able to go into the Promised Land because of the Ark of the Covenant leading them through, right? And they go in and uh, they conquer Jericho again with the Ark of the Covenant marching around the uh, city for seven days and on the seventh day, the walls come crumbling down, all because of the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant represents God in their midst. Okay, so in the wilderness, the Levites surrounded the Ark of the Covenant whenever they made camp, and all the other Israelite uh, tribes would surround them. Okay, so the Levites were a barrier. They couldn't get close to God, representing the sinfulness that the people had uh, established And the common expression that you see in the Old Covenant to describe the sinfulness is hard-heartedness. Okay, when you go to the book of Exodus is where you first see this, where Pharaoh hardened his heart. A hard heart is a sinful heart. But the Israelites are described as hard-hearted as well. You go to Psalm 95 and it makes that clear, talking about the Israelites uh, in the wilderness that they were hard-hearted. So, nothing but bad news so far, right? But what about the new covenant? What about Jesus and what he's going to do for us? Well, there's a couple of passages uh, that I want to look at that deal specifically with that hard-hearted nature. So flip over to Ezekiel chapter 36. So you go to the center of the Bible, you got Psalms, you go to the right, um, probably a few hundred pages, a couple hundred pages. Ezekiel chapter 36, and we're going to begin in verse 25. And Ezekiel chapter 36 comes right before a really famous uh, passage in chapter 37, uh, the Valley of Dry Bones. If you ever hear this, you may remember it from Mass. It's really distinct because it's the nation of Israel depicted as a bunch of dead dry bones and God's going to come and add flesh to those bones he's going to bring them back right he's going to add life to them Uh, but right before that we see a description of how he's going to accomplish this so Ezekiel chapter 36 beginning of verse 25 and he talks about baptism right he doesn't call it that but that's what is being depicted here Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. Right? Talking about our soul. And cleaning our souls is the forgiveness of sins. Right? I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Right? There you go. That's the the real clue. Idol. Idol worship. That's, you know, right at the, the top of the page here in terms of the sinfulness of the Israelites. Go back to the golden calf. Idolatry. 
you don't get any more sinful than that right and god is going to cleanse the people through the sprinkling of water through baptism you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols i will cleanse you a new heart i will give you remember hard-heartedness god's going to give them a new heart a new heart i will give you and a new spirit i will put within you and i will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh heart of stone a hard heart this is the reason god wrote the ten commandments on stone tablets because that was where the law was written was written on our hearts right but we had hard hearts we had stony hearts right so he wrote the commandments on stone and those are the commandments that are placed in the ark of the covenant but he's going to take out of us the heart of stone through baptism and give us a heart of flesh what heart of flesh and what spirit jesus heart right we're going to have his heart and the holy spirit dwelling in us interesting thing when we were talking about the eucharist um and at the very end we talked about the eucharistic miracle and um what's the name of that place lanciana thank you uh the miracle of Lanciano back in the 8th century, right? It still exists. They still have the tissue, right? They did a study on it, and it was heart, heart tissue. The Eucharist, right, had turned into heart muscle, right? It still exists today, you know, from the 8th century. I mean, it should have disintegrated long ago. Okay, then one more passage here flip back so head towards the the front um probably about close to 100 pages to the book of jeremiah chapter 31. jeremiah and ezekiel were roughly during the same time period uh writing about the babylonian captivity that we just talked about when the babylonians came in and took the uh the Jews into captivity for 70 years. All right, and the topic here is very much the same. Um, Jeremiah was actually a little bit before Ezekiel. So this is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. And he begins, Behold, the days are coming. So he's talking about, you know, what's coming after all of this, what we can expect in the future. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Right? Not just Judah. Remember, the ten northern tribes was Israel. They were taken off by the Assyrians. The two southern tribes, that's Judah, Judah and Benjamin, in the south around Jerusalem. That southern area was what the Babylonians took and brought into captivity for 70 years. Okay? And so God's saying not just Judah, but all of Israel, 10 northern tribes as well. He's going to make a new covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Right? The covenant that Moses established with them at Mount Sinai they broke because of the golden calf, right? But God's going to form a new covenant, something bigger and better. 
my covenant which they broke, and I showed myself their master, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. Remember the law written on stone tablets, but it's going to be within us. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Right? He's going to write his law on our hearts. And that language of I will be their God and they will be my people, that's covenant language. Okay? He's going to establish the covenant by giving us the law within our hearts. He's going to give us a new heart. Verse 34. And no longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So he's going to establish the covenant by the forgiveness of sins. Okay? All right. Now, we mentioned before about um, this thing we wanted to demonstrate about men being able to mediate the forgiveness of sins. Okay. Now, up to this point, we've been looking, you know, with all the other sacraments, with Old Testament and New Testament, you know, Old Testament prefiguring and New Testament realities. You know, you have the model in the Old Testament and then the actual structure in the New Testament. Okay, the foreshadowing and the reality. Okay, so do we see that? Do you see mediation of forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament? Well, yeah, you do. Okay, so let's take a look at a couple of those because it's important. If we can see it in the Old Testament, then you should expect it in the New Testament. Okay, because the New Testament takes what is prefigured in the Old Testament and makes it more of a reality, more powerful. So the first place I want to go is way back to the book of Numbers here. All right, so flip back to this one. And early on, okay, this is in the wilderness. Moses in the wilderness. It's the first generation of people who just came out of Egypt, right? Not too long after that. And they march through the desert, and they march up to the promised land, okay? And Moses sends scouts in to scout out Canaan, the land of Canaan, the promised land. He sends one from each tribe, 12 guys, go in there. And they see what everything is, and they come back and report, this is what we found. Okay? And they said they saw all sorts of cities and people who were like giants and real powerful. And basically scared the Israelites to death. Okay? And that's what happens in verse 14, is the response from the Israelites. God's telling them, go into the promised land. I will lead you. I will be faithful to you. I will make sure that you take over this land. This is your inheritance, right? You are my children, you're my sons, and I'm about to give you your inheritance, which is this land, which I promised all the way back with Abraham, right? You're about to receive the fulfillment of this promise from hundreds of years ago, okay? Think about all the miracles that took place, getting them to this point. And how do they respond? Not good. <laughs> Verse uh, chapter 14. So, so they, yeah. they had already been kind of the, the 
they march through the Red Sea. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, and that's what we see in verse fourteen. Uh, take a look at verse three. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Right. That's the response. It would have been better if we died in Egypt. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why does the Lord bring us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Yikes. You know, think about all the stuff they've seen up to this point. Mount Sinai, you know, thunder and lightning and and being brought through the Red Sea, the pillar of cloud that leads them during the day and the pillar of fire at night. And yet it's not enough. They don't think God can handle it. <laughs> so, you know, I laugh, but if we were in that place, you know, we'd have done the same thing, you know. And how long have Uh, not very long. Um, I think it was just a few months from this point, right? Because it's about a month between when they come out of um, um, Egypt and they get to Mount Sinai. It's, it's roughly about a month's period of time, and they're there. Moses is there for 40 days, right? Um, and then from there, they march straight out to the border, okay? So maybe three months. You know, not long enough for them to forget, right? And they're about to get the uh, the whammy saying, you're going to be here for 40 years in the wilderness, right? So it's less than a year. And here's God's response, uh, going down halfway through verse 10, uh, that first full paragraph. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs which I have wrought among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. Right? Notice the language, disinherit. They're children who have an inheritance, and God is threatening to disinherit them. And I will make of you, talking to Moses, a nation greater and mightier than them, than they. Right? Now, God knows what he's going to do, right? So the point of this is not about God and him changing his mind. The person here who doesn't know what God is going to do is Moses. So he's really trying to bring something out of Moses. And what he does is Moses steps up and defends his people. Verse 19 is where it really comes to a head. You know, he talks about all the different things, you know, about how other nations will look if God does this. You know, you'll, the other nations will look at God as being, you know, someone who doesn't keep his promises, that type of thing. And then we get down to verse 19. And he pleads with God, Pardon the iniquity of this people, I beg you, according to the greatness of your mercy, and according as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So Moses steps in with God and pleads mercy. And God's response? Then the Lord said, I have, a I have pardoned according to your word. Right? He's granting the prayer for, for the forgiveness of sins. Get that. I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth 
shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I wrought in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the proof these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, shall see the land which I swore to give to their fathers. Right? Now here's a, a, a distinction I want to make that's important to understand confession. There is a difference between the forgiveness of sins and the temporal punishment due to sins. Right? This is why there is purgatory. Right? Uh, the, the old uh, metaphor that was used is, you know, if we're like a piece of wood and sin is like a nail that's being driven into us. And the forgiveness of sins is like getting that nail pulled out, right? The sin is removed, but yet the wood is still damaged. The hole is there, right? And that needs to be repaired, okay? So there's a difference between the forgiveness of sins and the temporal punishment due to those sins, right? The people's sins have been forgiven, but yet they have a punishment that is due. Uh, and you see this in several other places in the Old Testament as well. So from there, I want to go to one other place. Um, we're running a little bit low on time here. So go to Isaiah. Because this one is really dramatic. Isaiah chapter 6. So where we were before with um, Jeremiah, go backwards from there. It's just to the right of the Psalms. Isaiah chapter 6. This is Isaiah's calling where he's getting his mission from God, right? God is choosing him. Um, it's where we get the song, Here Am I, Lord, right? Uh, also of, of importance here, uh, you have the angel saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, where we have the holy, holy, holy at the Eucharistic prayer. This is where it comes from. It's repeated again in the book of Revelation. But this is the Old Testament passage where we get that, right? Uh, the reason you have the, the trishagion, the, the three holies, is because uh, ancient Hebrew didn't have superlatives. Good, better, best, you know. If they wanted to emphasize something like that, they would repeat the word. So holy, holy, holy is, simply means the holiest. You know, it's the superlative for it. All right, so this angel... Seraphim, a six-winged angel, appears to Isaiah, okay? And Isaiah is terrified, <laughs> to say the least. And the angel comes, this is uh, halfway, verse 3, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Think about the, the Shekinah glory cloud, the cloud of uh, smoke that led the people through the wilderness. That's what's appeared here. Verse 5, And I said, this is Isaiah talking now, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Right? Unclean lips means he's a sinful man. Okay? And this angel has appeared to him and he's despairing. He thinks he's about to die because he's a sinner. And then here is the, the glory of God appearing to him. Verse 6. This is the important part. Then 
flew one of the seraphim to me, having in his hand a burning coal which he had taken with tongs from the altar. This is the heavenly altar, right? The, the, the temple in Jerusalem is built after a pattern. You know, we get this from Moses. Moses saw a pattern of the real temple in heaven that he built the, the tabernacle in model of, right? So this angel is taking a coal from the fire of the true temple in heaven where God and Jesus will uh, reside. Remember that passage from the book of Revelation that we looked at? You know, a lamb standing as though he has been slain, right? That's where Jesus is. So this angel takes one of these coals from the, the fire at the altar in heaven. One of the burning coals which he had taken with tongs from the altar, verse 7. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins forgiven. Right? This is an angel doing this. This is not God doing this directly. Not only that, but the angel is using physical matter, a coal from the fire. It's, it's not merely God's voice. It's an angel using physical matter to touch him to take away his sins. Right? So there is serious precedent in the Old Testament about the mediation of the forgiveness of sins. Okay. So what about the New Testament? Well, first of all, Jesus in uh, Matthew's gospel, right off the bat, the whole idea of the forgiveness is, of sins is at the very core of who Jesus is and what he does. Uh, in chapter 1 of Matthew's gospel, don't worry about flipping there, uh, the angel Gabriel appears to Joseph in a dream, and he gives him the command about taking uh, Mary. In verse 21, he says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Right? Jesus literally means God saves. And so his entire mystery is tied up with his name, which signifies what he will do. He will save us from our sins. So, and when he establishes the covenant, in Matthew 26, we've looked at this passage a couple of times. When he actually establishes the covenant at the Last Supper with the cup. He has the, the bread, this is my body, verse 27. And he took a chalice, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Remember, we looked at that. That's the words from Mount Sinai with Moses. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Right? So, he's. this is, I'm sorry, chapter 26 of Matthew uh, verse 27 is the, the verse. When he establishes the covenant, he's establishing a bond, a kinship bond between God and man. Through his death, the poured out actually is a reference all the way back to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant psalm, where the, the servant you know, gives his life as a ransom for the people. He takes on their sins, right? So he pours out his blood 
for the forgiveness of sins. What he does on Mount Calvary, which is also what he does in the upper room at the Last Supper, is establishing a covenant which takes away our sins and reunites us with God. Now, again, back to this idea about mediation. Uh, one of the places I want you to go, uh, and I do want you to turn to this one, is also in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, there's a longer version in Mark's Gospel in chapter 2, but let's look at Matthew's chapter 9. This is about the paralytic. I'm sure you'll recognize the, the story here. It's in Capernaum. It's at Peter's house. And these four guys bring this paralyzed person into the house. There's so many people they can't even get in. So they tear a hole in Peter's roof, of all things, and lower the guy down. You remember the story, and Jesus heals him. But there's a couple of things that Jesus says which really sets this off and makes it very distinct from many of the other healings that he establishes. So this is uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. And in getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on his bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Notice the language here, right? Who's he looking at? Whose faith is he responding to? It's the four guys who are carrying the paralytic. He sees their faith. He doesn't see the paralytic's faith, his faith, right? He, he's doing this for a reason. You know, the paralytic probably has faith too, but he's showing us the faith of them, their faith in bringing this paralytic, because the paralytic can't bring himself, can he? He's paralyzed. He can't go anywhere. He's a lump on the ground. He requires these people to help him. And so Jesus sees their faith. That's what he's responding to. Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So their faith mediates the forgiveness that God establishes and gives to this paralytic. Right? Really odd when you think about what's going on here and compare it to you know, all the other healing miracles. This one really stands out. Right? Because all the other healing miracles that you see, it's about the physical healing. Well, what do these physical ailments signify? They signify sin. Right? It's not just healing for Jesus to flash his spiritual muscle and to say, hey, look at me, I'm God. No, they, they signify sin. They signify his mission coming to earth that he would forgive sins. And he says it outright here and proves it. And what's the response? You know, the people go crazy when they hear this. Verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Right? And, and But Jesus, verse 4, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed, and go home. And in Mark's account, they say in their hearts, the scribes, you know, who can forgive sins but God? Right? God alone can forgive sins. So Jesus is proving 
He's been given authority, right? Notice that. He's been given authority to be able to forgive sins. And he proves it. He tells the one, the guy, rise and take up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority, right? Jesus has the authority, but look at the language here. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. Plural, right? Who's writing this? Matthew. Who's Matthew? He's one of the apostles. One of the apostles who Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? And by the way, what happens when they baptize someone? Their sins are forgiven. Right? So that, again, is another example of mediated forgiveness. So Matthew is the one who's mentioning that this was given to men. Not to man, individual Jesus, but to men. So flip over to Matthew chapter 18, where we get more of the foundation of how this takes place. Remember Matthew 16, this the whole famous passage of Jesus, Peter and the keys, where Peter is given the keys of the kingdom, right? And he's given authority to bind and loose. Well, this passage in chapter 18 is directed to all the apostles. So we get this situation in Matthew 18, verse 15, about someone who sins against his brother, right? That's the backdrop. It's a, a, a matter of someone sinning. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is consistent with what you see in the Old Testament law, right? You take one person to have real authority, you take witnesses, okay? Verse 17, if he, listens, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So this is the, the court of final appeal, appeal, if you will, the church, right? And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So if he doesn't listen to the church, the church has the ability to excommunicate. That's what they mean by being treated as a Gentile or a tax collector. And verse 18 is the foundational idea behind this, how they can do this. Truly, I say to you, he's talking to the apostles now. He's talking to the church. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Right? The idea of binding and loosing has been given to the church, not just to Peter as Pope, but to the church itself, established through the ministers of the church, the bishops and the priests, okay? Binding and loosing. And just one more passage to back that idea up. Um, go to Luke. Flip over to chapter 10 in Luke's gospel. Now there is uh, two episodes in the gospels where we see Jesus sending out two by two his apostles, right? 
He sends the 12 out, two by two, to go and preach and to heal and uh, to proclaim the gospel. Okay? They cast out demons and they heal. Right? Remember what we said, healing is symbolic for the forgiveness of sins. Physical ailments represent sins. Right? They represent defects in us. Okay? Physical defects that represent inner defects. Not that everybody who has an ailment is necessarily sinful because of that, right? Don't want to get this taken the wrong way. I know, right? <laughs> but in the Old Testament, is it's an idea that was readily understood. They understood the whole idea of leprosy in the Old Testament. You were unclean. You couldn't worship in the temple, right? There was practical reasons for that, too. You would get everybody else to contract leprosy. Right? But it symbolized the separate separatedness, you know, the ability the lack of ability to worship. Okay, so Jesus sends out the twelve to all the different towns. While he's there, it's like a dry run for the church. Right? He sends out the twelve to basically have a mini mission, you know, this is what's gonna be like after I'm gone. And then he does it again with seventy. Right? Twelve then seventy. You know, you see those same numbers with Moses. You had the 12 tribes, and then you had 12 representatives for those 12 tribes. But when uh, things were getting too hard for Moses to try to judge everything, his father-in-law Jethro uh, comes in and says, hey, you're, you're doing too much. You need to appoint people to, to delegate your authority, right? So he, he appoints 70, right? So they have the 12, then they have the 70, and they have Moses. Well, you here have Jesus, who's like a new Moses. You've got the 12 apostles, like the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes, and then you have 70, right? See the pattern here. So he sends out the 70 in verse 10, or uh, chapter 10, and in verse 16, this is chapter 10, verse 16. He says to the 70, you know, getting them ready for the, the ministry, he who hears you, the 70, the church, he who hears you, hears me. And he who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, him who sent me. Right? He who hears you, hears me. Okay? The church doesn't speak on its own authority. It speaks through Jesus. Just as the priest says, this is my body, this is my blood. He doesn't say, this is his body, this is his blood. Right? When you hear him, the priest, you hear Jesus. This is my body, he says. He's an altar Christus, another Christ. Right? And it's the same thing in confession. You know, he could, Jesus could just as easily be saying, he who hears you, hears me. When the priest says, I absolve you of your sins. So, the actual establishment of confession, the words that Jesus uses to say, this is what you got to do, takes place in John's Gospel. This will be our last passage for the night. In chapter 20. This is the first day of the week uh, when Mary Magdalene went to the tomb that morning. And later on, Jesus appears to them in the upper room. This is John chapter 20. Uh, starting in verse 19. Just a little to the right from Luke. 
Yep, I told you we'd come back to it too. All right, so John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Remember I said there's like a little sandwich here. When you want to emphasize something, you surround it on either side with the same thing, like two pieces of bread with a meat in the middle, right? So he says, peace be with you twice. What's in the middle? He shows them his hands and his side, signifying his passion, his death. And now he is standing before them in the resurrection. So what's taking place, the power for what he's about to say is rooted in his passion, in his death and resurrection, right? That's the source of what's coming. So peace be with you, he says in verse 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. They're apostles. The word apostle means one who is sent. Remember what we saw in Luke 10. He who hears you hears me. And Jesus is telling them, as the Father sent me, even so, I send you. This is their mission. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Right? They received the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Right? It's almost like that language of binding and loosing, isn't it? Right? But notice what is implied here. He says he's giving them the ability to forgive sins. That's clear, right? Even though many Protestants will say, well, he's just announcing that people's sins are forgiven. No, look at the language here, though. What's implied? If you, receive, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. Right? The second part, though. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. How can you tell which sins... To forgive and which sins to retain. He's telling this to the apostles. The only way they can tell which sins to forgive and which to retain, they have to be told, right? They have to have the sins confessed to them. Now, why would they retain some sins? Most likely because the person who has done the sin is not really uh, contrite. You know, that part that we talked about at the beginning, contrition, right? Uh, because whatever circumstances, you know, they, the priest can tell that they're going to keep doing it. You know, they have no intention of stopping. So right here, Jesus gives the authority. And it's powerful because of what takes place. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit. Okay, which we see back in Genesis when God breathed on Adam and gave him a living spirit. He created life in Adam through his breath, through the Holy Spirit. And here is God breathing on man again, giving them the power to bring them back to life spiritually. Okay. Now, in, in confession, confession, properly understood, is for the forgiveness of mortal sins. It can forgive venial sins. Remember, we talked about venial and mortal but its primary purpose, you know, the reason we have it is to 
forgive mortal sins, right? Now, it's good and holy to go even if you only have venial sins. Don't get me wrong here. Uh, but there are other ways we can receive forgiveness uh, of venial sins. The Eucharist, receiving the Eucharist can forgive venial sins. An act of contrition can forgive venial sins. You know, like John says, we can pray for somebody else and that can actually forgive venial sins. But mortal sins are a different matter because venial sins weaken the relationship between God and man, right? It damages it, but it's not broken completely. A mortal sin is what totally separates God from man. You've cut off the relationship between God and man. You're saying no in an absolute sense to God, right? So Jesus has established the sacrament of confession to be the normal, the, the ordinary means of the forgiveness of mortal sins, right? I say ordinary because remember what I said in the beginning, uh, the very beginning of week one, uh, we are bound by the sacraments, but God is not. Right? Because there can be situations where somebody is truly f sorry for their sins, yet you know, they can't get to a priest. Right? Um, or maybe some other kind of extenuating circumstances. Somebody's about to die, and they cry out, God save me. God can save that person. He's not bound by the sacraments. But we are. When we have the means and the opportunity to go to confession, we have immortal sins, we're obliged to go to confession. Right? But again, even with venial sins, it's good and holy to go to confession because remember we talked in the beginning that there are graces that are given in the sacraments beyond just the, the thing given, right? And so with confession, the, the grace of the sacrament that are, we are given is a strengthening of the soul to resist temptations in the future. So it's good and proper to, to go to confession on a regular basis even if you're not in a state of mortal sin. Right? Because God gives us graces that will help us and strengthen us and build us up spiritually so we can do better in the future. All right. So that's it for confession. Next time is the anointing of the sick. Does anybody have any questions or comments? Or, yeah. You got a question? Going way back sure. to Mount Sinai. Right. Moses was up there for 40 days. Yep. Right? So in 40 days, the Israelites got impatient and frustrated and said, heck with this, we're going we're to melt all this stuff down. That's right. In 40 days. After 40 days, Moses on Mount Sinai, they made the golden calf. And yeah. But remember, they had been in Egypt for 400 years. And, you know, that was one of the gods of Egypt. You know, Apis, the, the bull god, right? And it's a golden calf. It represents the unholy trinity of money, sex, and power, right? All right there. It's gold, you know, money. It's a bull, which represents uh, virility. And, you know, a bull is a huge, powerful animal, right? Money, sex, and power. And they fall right into it. And guess who did it, you know, and built it? Aaron, the high priest, you know? Is, to quote the Simpsons, Simpsons don't. <laughs> yeah, the, and the, the ancient rabbis always said the golden calf was to 
the Israelites what the forbidden fruit was to Adam and Eve, right? It was the catastrophe. So, all right, anybody else? Okay. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, watch over us by day and by night. In the midst of life's countless changes, strengthen us with your never-changing love. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all.